so um, by way by way of starting off, <clears throat> I mean you know, and we're we're gonna edit this stuff, so whatever. But I mean, by way of starting off, I thought uh, I mean I wanted to throw it to Caddy, but I don't want you to have to jump in right away. So I was gonna see uh, why other folks might be interested in Deleuze or this book in particular as a sort of like what what we're looking to get out of it, and you know why why we're doing this thing. Why yeah. we're starting into this thing. I mean, for the rest of us, like particularly after the, you know, the Hegel, I mean, there's some, I mean, I don't know, like for me at least, having spent the last six months reading Hegel and then moving to this, I feel like I can fucking breathe again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, yes, this is, you know, sort of something inventive and playful and, f- and funny, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just like meticulously um, serious and <laughs> plotting. You know, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. But I mean, look, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed the Hegel thing. I feel like I turned a lot of corners in terms of my sort of what we would loosely call kind of appreciation of the movement of dialectical thinking in ways that I was right. so resistant to it. And, you know, the podcast will kind of, I think, tell that story, uh, at mm-hmm. least on my side of it. Um, for yeah. me, obviously, Deleuze is stuff that I've been reading for, you know, 20 years. And, uh, this is a book that, uh, I mean, Nathaniel and I did this about, what was it, about 10 plus years ago? It's like eight, or something like ago, that. Yeah. yeah, eight, ten years ago that we, we went through chunks of it. And, I mean, obviously we, we need to talk some about the structure of the thing, but simply put, it just occurred to me, like, this is clearly a kind of proto version of the plateau, right? Like, I mean, this is, he, he's doing plateaus and he's doing them, you know, it's not series in the sense of a linear series, and it's just sort of... I, I realized in reading this, like, without thinking about it, this is the model for the style book I'm writing right now. Like, I'm doing just chunks of five to eight page chunks, and I've got, like, 15 of them or whatever so far. But, you know, like, it is this kind of thinking. And I'm also doing it in such a way where, like, it's not just some of the things would be one large chunk but I broke them into two but I don't have the first one first and the second one second I have the second one for you know so like so that the transmission would go backwards and forwards which in this case just like Thousand Plateaus there's no real order uh, uh, in which to read it and it it doesn't really I think in terms of the series it doesn't really matter Um, or or rather another way of saying it is it matters a lot which order you read it in but there isn't the right one Um, so you know, I, I think in terms of, and we can get to, work, to this towards the end, but like in terms of where we want to go from here, I think jumping around is a perfectly viable strategy rather than kind of insistently hammering through uh, this. I've series. always, but that's just I've always, a, I've always appreciated that uh, stylistically about Deleuze, just because it's the emphasis is obviously not on, well, it's not uh, particularly on comprehension. It's about sort of sampling and finding what you know you can attach to. And that's the same as it is in the uh, Thousand Plateaus, obviously. So I think, I mean, at least for me, reading Deleuze now, I'm seeing increasingly similarities between his thinking and Hegel's. I know that for a majority of the the Hegel podcast, we were kind of doing this, a lot of those episodes we would do kind of a compare and contrast, you know, with Mm -hmm. the styles of thinking. And um, I mean, I would say personally, I have probably like a cursory knowledge, at least compared to, to John and Nathaniel, uh, with Deleuze. I don't know about how much you've read, Caddy, of, of his stuff, but I've only read through your classes, John, you know, so, so I mean, it's not, I, I don't, I don't have a comprehensive, you know, knowledge of Deleuze's oeuvre, but I am excited to kind of refine 
these these comparisons that we've been making um, for the last few months uh, between those kinds of thinking, you know, affirmation, negation, dialectic, you know, play, that kind of, those kind of... Well, dialectics, really, I mean, obviously, the Stoic dialectic is a different... Oh yeah, for sure. Hegelian one, but he's very interested in dialectics as the the means of of the event, right? So. For sure, for sure. Right, yeah. yeah. I only have the the greatest hits under my belt, mm-hmm. um, but it's I've still a pretty heavy it. playlist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but I've I've always known that I had to come to the logic of sense because I mean. First off, if if you're going to study something like doxa, you have to you just have to live in the realm of becoming. Like that's just your metaphysics, right? Like it's just yeah. becoming. There's really um, being being only has an option as becoming's playful, you know, counter whatever interlocutor, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I always knew that, and I was just so struck reading this um, by how. But how apt it is for kind of the, I don't know what you want to call it, the post-human turn or whatever, but also just kind of thinking about bodies in relation to digitality. I mean, Deleuze in this already, and I'm, I might tear up because I'm really excited, and that's just what happens when I get really excited at, like, about cool. research. Um, but like it's, it's already incredibly clear to me that for him, sense makes the body sensing kind of this 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 digital virtual thing you know Mm -hmm. like it extends the body way past Mm -hmm. the body right and and it just makes so much sense in thinking about um bodies encountering digitality and then digitality encountering bodies and and all of the sense that kind of goes into that so this is just a very timely thing i think yeah yeah i i totally agree with this the the way it resonates with post-human thought i mean i think all of the loser stuff does that but this one particularly does just because you have to radically rethink the way that he's you know articulating the the term body which like i mean the, the challenge for me is always to never think of that as exclusively reducive to human bodies or even living bodies but to think about like an infinite set of overlapping or like articulations as body or individuation as the making of a body so like you get you know like what we would in sort of more common parlance call like digital bodies or digital human bodies or whatever i mean you can get an infinite set of those things and that i i really do like that i also like i mean because i agree with you john that the sort of plateau series um comparison is is there and um you know, when I first sort of approached A Thousand Plateaus and I read that, you you know, you can read a plateau in any direction and the direction that you read it really matters, but, you know, it doesn't, but it also doesn't matter. And I mean, I, I, I didn't quite appreciate the power of that until I worked through this a little bit more where like the the reason for the the reason that reading it through in one particular direction as opposed to another one really matters because he outlines the sort of the process of the sense making like the way like reading two series in relationship to each other sort of acts as an event that redistributes and reevaluates the entire like it resonates through the entire body that you have have read.
there's almost well i mean there's clearly like an ethics attached to um that kind of invitation to sample and switch around and not read in a linear fashion like it's not demanding that you comprehend the full text which i think is mm -hmm. just a clear sort of it's so much less uh domineering because most texts are trying to now Deleuze does try to intimidate you not maybe not explicitly but you know to the to the extent that like the language is really dense and the concepts are like sort of all over the place but I do think I mean I, I'm going to try to keep the comparisons to Hegel to a minimum because I know this is a separate thing but comparatively like when you contrast that just that simple ethic you know to Hegel's where he's he's commanding your attention and he wants you to read it sort of like like a what do you call it, like in a narrative fashion, you know, front to back, linear, the teleology. I mean, just simply giving a series is antithetical to that and, and, and invites the reader in a much different way. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he Hegel's is very clearly unidirectional, right? And this right. is not. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it says so from the beginning. And it, it, it's one of the things that I found I, myself paying attention to was, because interestingly enough, there's a, there's an intensely authoritative voice here, which is, you know, the Stoics invented the event, right? Yeah. That's a, these are big No one did this before. Right? Like the, right. No one, like the, right. they invented a new way of thinking, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, and so he has these incredibly audacious, authoritative sentences in the midst of a thinking that is, you know, recursive and mm -hmm. um, right. Uh, right. multiple and disorienting. And so it's, it's just this really interesting kind of, juxtaposition of on because it's it seems kind of ludic but it also seems kind of like insistently ludic right. you know yeah. <laughs> well i mean and, and like to compare it to hegel whereas i feel like hegel would want to substantiate that claim or he would want it to carry some kind of like weight of truth <laughs> I, I i feel like deleuze really only cares about the chain of effects that the authoritativeness is like the authoritativeness here is a style that is going to uh, like resonate with what what follows from it, so it's more like a launching off point or a riff that, or the, as it is like a claim to some kind of representational truth. Like, so this know, is a common go back and it yourself. You'll find it. Right, like this is a common stylistic move that he r repeats in other places. But uh, there were a couple of instances of this in what we read so far, where he'll make a sort of claim that is. I don't really understand exactly what the claim is, but it's a very assertive claim. And then he'll quote from Lewis Carroll a quote that makes no fucking sense whatsoever yeah. as an explanation of that claim. But it's just presented there as like, see, see, here's here's my evidence to support the thing that I was saying when the evidence makes no sense to support the thing. Yeah. And you and well, right, of course. And then you realize, ah, he's doing that, right? Like right, that right. this is part of this is part of the MO of of the writing. So I was thinking about this when you were uh Nathaniel when you were talking about the body question and you know it's really explicit in the Nietzsche book about like the convergence of two forces forms a body. That's what a body is is the convergence of forces. It doesn't matter whether it's a social body, uh, mm -hmm. uh an organic body and inorganic none of that matters. It's just the convergence of forces that creates any any sense of what a body is. Um, and so, and I think that that's true in here as well. And you can see there's kind of a lack of interest in the so-called materiality of the body part of things, you know, in, in its traditional configuration. Right. You know, or it's and, just one and, of many. It's it's, it's right. one of an infinite array of possible 
arrangements of, of right there's kind of there's kind of a paradox there where it's like the this like sensing and senses you know takes alice and creates this kind of virtual sheen right um yeah. and extends alice beyond alice body per se right right but right. but then but by doing so it also draws attention to just how bodily that body absolutely is, right it's, and so the, there's the, that the, play the incorporate the incorporeality which again will play out in thousand plateaus in order word stuff and the sort of the language version you know later on uh yeah. with guitar but you yeah. see it you see it all here the sort of emphasis on the so-called incorporeal dimension right. uh, of the, of the two dimensions the incorporeal i mean this is where like you know like <clears throat> i mean we've talked about this before but you know what has always drawn me about Deleuze, Derrida, and those types of the, the Nietzschean lineage of thinkers is while most thinkers are like, given stuff, how do things change? Is the usual orientation of thinking. Like, given that there's stuff, how do things change? And the, the, the interest or the intervention of these types of thinkers is exactly the opposite of that, which mm -hmm. is like, given that shit is becoming all the time, how, does, how do things ever stick together, right? Like, mm -hmm. how, do you right. Ever have, how do you ever have something like a politics? I mean, how do, you know, mm -hmm. given that you've got, so it's just a, it is presuming, I mean, as Caddy was saying before, that kind of ontology, you know, in quotation marks, of becoming as kind of prior. So you had, like, how do you ever get stuff? Would it be worth reflecting on a little bit about the, the concept of the podcast? Uh, I mean, the, the idea of thinking with and where it's taken. Because we had several explicit conversations about this early on in the Hegel tapes. Yeah. We need to come up with a cool name for this one, by the way. Because the Hegel mm -hmm. tapes, are, I think, I like that name. But we talked about this, <laughs> you know, early on and then sporadically. And I think it would be helpful for us to reflect on it a little bit more. But I think it will also be good... A good moment to do it, introducing Caddy to the to the mix, uh, so that she can have a sense of what's been going on and, and where they're going, and you know, she has mm -hmm. to jump in and change the dynamic a bit. Um, I mean, what yeah. what's your take on how? Like, I mean, the the one obvious change that happened is is in the first five to six episodes, and we've been doing this for like yeah six over six months. Yeah. Um, the first half of the episodes, we took like what we took 10 paragraphs for a reading and mm -hmm. we were we stuck pretty close to to the text and right. after we started to get the groove we we opened up that like we started reading no we were reading like two yeah, we or were three just doing paragraphs. A, a, a paragraph we were doing like, we were doing like a paragraph. paragraph an episode yeah that's right wow. yeah <laughs> and then we opened it, up it, the it took us it took us three months to get through i don't know 10 pages yeah <laughs> Wow! No, I'm not even joking. And then, and then when when we got really like crazy, we were doing ten pages. Ten parrots. Mm -hmm. oh, that was parents. just wow. You know, yeah. Like that lot. was towards towards the end. It was like ah, oh, no holds barred, man. Yeah. We're gonna do ten pages for next week. Well, we had to start moving just to get to the master slave yeah. stuff. You know, we had yeah. to we had to make some improvements. Some we speed realized this could be our life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, no, we did this for seven months and we read a hundred and forty pages. Yeah. yeah, wow. And we met pretty much every week. I mean, there were a couple of exceptions, but we met pretty much every week. Wow. So mm -hmm. that's 
Mm-hmm. And so, like, like compared to that, off. you know, we're starting off in warp drive with. Um, with <laughs> we did eleven pages. I was like, this is insane. Insane. Too much. But I. God. I like. I mean, I was able to read it <laughs> twice you. and read some of the Williams and read the first yeah. like. That's what I mean. I, I spent in Wonderland. I spent a good ten to twelve hours on these eleven pages with, with not the eleven pages, but just the sort of circle right, around, around them it, to yeah. other kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do <laughs> any reading around it, but I read like the ten pages, and I immediately was like. Oh fuck! We're gonna have to speed this along because I need this now. <laughs> like, like, like y'all, I I can jump in again for like the next ten pages, but I am I'm going. Like, right. I'm gonna go, and then I'm gonna come back, yeah. and it'll be perfect, right? Because yeah. my senses will be altered, my bodies yeah. will be altered. You know, so yeah. <laughs> Caddy will just come back every episode with a slightly crazier, like, wilder look in her eye. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've been beyond you. <laughs> you don't yeah. know what I've seen. <laughs> so, I'm becoming. So are you going to be using this for a book project? Or how are oh, you? Oh, yeah. The big oh, book yeah. project coming up? Yeah. Okay. You're yeah. finishing it. You're, you're, you're revising the disc, right, into right, book okay. form? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the draft of my book is due uh, July. <laughs> And I'm about to go into research leave. And mm. the, the book project is basically, um, you know, reclaiming DOXA to kind of think about opinions in terms of the, the digital age. Uh, and this chapter that I'm just starting um, originally was going to, each chapter is kind of like DOXA and blank. Like, what's some site that we can kind of rethink through opinion um, to make sense of, to make sense of some weird digital phenomena right um so it's like docs on isolation docs and space and now i'm at what i thought was going to be docs in the body but now it is very clear to me as i as i manically was texting nathaniel it's very clear to me that this is docs and sense um which of course makes sense right given like of course you know we we always talk about opinion in terms of of sense right? right um and this was also the chapter where I was going to kind of think about what happens when people fall for misinformation um, mm-hmm. and fall or, or don't understand online satire. And it's going to become right. the conspiracy theory chapter. Um, QAnon. Nice. So yeah. QAnon, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, so like Deleuze with, with sense and nonsense and that yeah. kind of territorial breach <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like that is just going to be incredibly, incredibly useful. And, and of course, reverberating through all of this is, is a rent and, and thinking about Doxa as this sixth sense, right? right? Mm-hmm. And that was really timely as well because, you know, she's thinking about sense, at, th- that sense as something that fits us into some kind of common world, mm-hmm. which is mind-blowing. That's, that's mm-hmm. mind-blowing yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's definitely that Deleuze takes on, I think, like, like straight on. The, I mean, the, the, the notion of the good sense as, like, the right direction through yep. a, like, the, the, the um, logical field of something. And then the common sense common that sense. brings disparate yeah. parts and sort of, like, establishes a common from the uncommon. Like, that's what he's going to, that's what he totally fucks with in the, in, in this and that, right. and, and he and, definitely like explicitly and, and difference in repetition, especially like those are the the primary targets of those books are good sense and common sense. Yeah, mm. 
Right. And with the rent, I mean, with her emphasis on the sort of like the polis as the site of action, that creates a space of remembering and the possibility of the who to to emerge. I mean, she's pretty committed to the space of the common. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it'll. I mean, I I I think that they'll be very interesting people to put in conversation with you, uh, but. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is this is also kind of the the chapter that that rethinks topical invention which is just also really perfect because of course that's relational and really bodily right it's an expressing and not a stating and Mm -hmm. so in that expressing even when people fall for misinformation that's that's inventive but it's not um definitive right it's not it's it's that kind of sense of sense as not fixed but in fact discovery right like i i really think that Reading Deleuze is making me understand the inventive dimensions mm-hmm. of sense in a way that I just, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's going to be fun. And it's going to move me away from, you know, that, that common reading of Aristotle being somebody who's interested in common sense. No, Aristotle was not interested in common sense. Aristotle <laughs> was interested in uncommon sense. Like, mm-hmm. what, what the elites say is uncommon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that is not... <laughs> Right. You know, right. the conoy. Yeah. 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 I was gonna say I, I kind of like the idea of the uh, um, doxa in the body. Still though, if you just started writing about the body in the way that, and so that like when when body people come to read your thing, they're like. I don't think these are the bodies we're writing about. <laughs> She's saying yeah. that word, but I don't think that word means what right, I think that word means. No, that's true. Let's, yeah. let's start in with that then, because I mean, I think that the the question of the bi-directionality of sense uh, mm-hmm. is, I mean, obviously he leads with it, um, yeah. and it's going to be a, a constant refrain because I, I hear. You don't necessarily have the ontology that you do in a thousand plateaus, but it's the same thinking, which is that, and it, I mean, if you could say it this way, you don't get recognition and identification without misrecognition and misidentification. That they are, they're simultaneously parts, and and this is, I mean, the ontological version of it being like you've got your plane of emissions facing the body without organs and facing the strata, and so you don't form strata without also forming a body without organs. So it's not right. like you've got this sort of like, you know, the the heady identified recognizable thing without having dispersion. I mean you. There's yes. no, you don't get to pick one, right? Like, you, you know, there's never like, hey, let's be on the liberatory side. Like, there's no side, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, you're only ever working in, in uh, on both, both dimensions, if you say it that way. I mean, he attributes it to Plato, but I think, interestingly, there's just a little shift from Plato here. Like, he, I mean, on, the, on page one where he says Plato... Plato asks us to choose between these two dimensions. One is the recognition, identification, or I would call that Hegel, sorry. But recognition, identification side, and then the mad, going mad, batshit crazy side. Um, but that they're not two different things, right? That they are, um, that there is a, a seamless connection uh, among those. Or, or another way of saying it is that, you know, like that, those recognizable, identifiable things are comprised or are made up of nothing but going mad, mm-hmm. right? Like, that, that, that that's all they are. And that's, to me, that's, that's a really big and important idea. I mean, yeah. to, to say that the sort of calcified and edifying moments are not opposed 
to mm-hmm. the becoming mad, right? They they are made up of them. Everything. This is where you get like Foucault's. There's nothing but resistance. And it's like no, because power is made up of nothing but. That's all it is. Is just force forces of resistance. <clears throat> and whereas and and look, a lot of political thinkers that doesn't make sense, because we must see them as opposed forces or opposed sides. And I feel like that's one of the really cool. I mean, and we're we start with that. Right, we start with you don't get bigger without getting smaller. Right, right. The calcification um, is always already a becoming calcified. Right, like that's it never right. is calcified, and it's never. That's right. be- I mean, it's it, it is always in the process of slowing down or capturing more, but it is never it's never stopped. Right, so right. it's never cut off from everything else. I mean, to use the language of being and becoming that we've been using. Um, you know, in, the, in the second page, uh, halfway down that first full paragraph, um, after you're, he's talking about the, the sort of the different tensions between the model and the copy and the model copy and the simulacrum, he, he turns the, the cradleist into language. Um, it's still via Plato. And it's just like halfway down um, after he asked that question. Sometimes Plato wonders whether this pure becoming might not have a very peculiar uh, relation to language. This seems to be uh, one of the principal meetings of the cradleist. Could this relation uh, be perhaps essential to language, as in uh, in the case of a flow of speech or a wild discourse which would incessantly slide over its referent without ever stopping? Or might there not be two languages and two sorts of names, one designating the pauses and rests which receive the action and the idea, and the other expressing the movements or rebel becomings? Or further still, is it not possible that there are two distinct dimensions internal to language in general, one always concealed by the other, yet continuously coming to the aid or subsisting under the other? I mean, to me, that was like a really... That's that last one. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, the end of that is what I, I really latched on to because, I mean, one of the, the moves of the sort of, like, becoming ontologist is sort of the, like, I'm done with being, get rid of it, everything is becoming, and here you say, like, you can't think one without the other, That's right. right? I mean, right. you know, when we started talking about flows and becomings and whatever else, it's you're always... The, the capacity to talk about it is always only vis-a-vis the hypothesizing of those forces, right? And so, like, the activation of a force is always going to run into something else, which is always going to create some kind of resistance, to use the language that you're using before. So, so this is why people need to become better readers of Plato, I think. <laughs> Because it's it's not it's never that distinct for him. Even when you know the dialogue, whatever dialogue there is, like even when it seems like the distinction is going to be made and cemented and fixed for sure, right? There's always it's always thrown into relief by something um, kind of poetic about the dialogue or, or something you know like about arrangement or even you know the fact that the speaker ends something with a question mark, right? You know, there's that. I, I always think about this amazing moment in the Timaeus where Timaeus is kind of like, okay, you know, first of all, we have to distinguish between being and becoming, right? That that there, there there's the intelligible and then the not intelligible, um, and then he, you know, he's kind of like, uh, maybe we only know that there's intelligible because we sense it. 
um, through, through the stuff that is becoming. And then he's like, oh, but you know, it's fine. Like, no worries. Yeah. That, that's just my opinion, maybe. It might, it, you know. Um, and he ends that moment with, it's probably just empty talk all the way down. <laughs> And it's just this great moment where becoming and being like, he knows that that's the fundamental question and cannot make a distinction in and of itself. Yeah. So, I mean, to to your point there, Caddy, right above what Nathaniel read is that he's like, look, this, (laughs) this dualism is not that of the intelligible and the sensible, right? right? Like it is, it is something that circulates through both the intelligible and the sensible like what I'm interested you know what he's interested in here is something that's not reducible to that kind of that kind of distinction I mean he doesn't bring up the Timaeus but it's it's the same kind of thinking here I mean look Derrida's word for it is difference right Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Deleuze's later word for it is desire Uh, Foucault's word for it is power right like it is this sort of pre-ontological movement I mean I always feel like the illocutionary is is a perfectly good word for it as well right like that the sort of force of movement prior that, that doesn't have a particular telos right that is the condition of possibility for all of those kinds of distinctions between sensible and intelligible etc cetera, etc cetera. well unlike the uh with the hegel tapes um uh in addition to the fact that i'm just interested in in reading this stuff and enjoy talking about it with y'all. I actually have a project kind of more explicitly connected to the logic of sense. And it's, I mean, it's a platonic one. Caddy's read a draft of it. And, and I mean, that's exactly what I, I, I want to do is sort of activate a little bit more of a destabilizing thread that I see running throughout the Phaedrus where mm-hmm. like writing in, in that discourse, writing, really sort of undoes its representational sense. And, and I mean, in the way that it is plugged into the myth of the charioteers. And right, writing, it, writing itself does that, not some additional operation that one has to do correct. to writing. Writing correct. itself both establishes it, the, the fixed coordinates and undoes the establishing of the fixed coordinates. That's Derrida. Right. Well, and, and this is what I mean, I want to focus on the, the, the myth and I want to focus on the stuff that I mean, like Derrida largely ignores the speeches. Right. He focuses on the myth of writing at, uh, at the end and he focuses oh, on a few yeah, topological yeah. things, but he, he largely ignores the speeches because that's usually what gets all of the, sure. the attention. And I want to try to to stitch the two sides together a little okay. bit more. Um, and I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I kind of want to read, I want to, I want to try to create an event within the text that is going to sort of produce a new sense of writing that does not eradicate the sort of reductive version of writing that he comes that, that, that is often gets taken away from it, but sort of works alongside of it where all of those valuations of, you know, mere uh, remembrance and um, you know repetition and um, uh, like Empty monuments and yeah that all of those things sort of get reevaluated as the life giving force and energy of of writing itself that these and uh, end up working as sort of like the the catalysts of of the movement of thinking itself where the fact that they are contentless is precisely what allows them to to spark the movement of thinking. Yes. Right? Yes. Now, I, I need to kinda... figure out... 
I mean, like for me, turning to this book, I don't know how explicitly I want to bring that up. I don't know how. I, I, I mean, this is my personal side project, although I'll welcome y'all's uh, advice on it. I want to figure out how to... I, what I don't want to do is say, like, here's the logic of sense. It's my lens for reading Plato. Here's, well, here's my hermeneutic reading of Plato vis-a-vis -vis the logic of sense, because that, not, what could be more antithetical to this project than doing that? But I don't... Right. I, haven't, I have not figured out how to finesse the relationship better, though. Have you, have you read the appendix to this yeah. book? The, okay. Cause yeah, that's, the, that the, was, the, the simulacrum one. Right. That was really formative. My, uh, my, the Plato, the reading of the sophist that I do in the invention book, um, yeah. that's all taken out of that essay. And, yeah. uh, and it was also, I mean, it really forced me to think through Plato's logic of the copy and simulacrum in the Republic and in other places, but it was really, really helpful to me because it allowed me to realize, and this is, uh, you know, how De Deleuze works by just saying things and not explaining them <laughs> very often. And, uh, but being able to understand where, because he says a lot of times that the simulacrum is not a second order copy, um, right. and, and realizing why that's crucial, because the copy for Plato has an internal resemblance to the model, whereas the simulacrum, and the example that he gives of the simulacrum is the, the large statue, right? Mm -hmm. Like a, a statue that's built so large that you have to, and Williams, I think, uses this example as well. And for me, I after part I'm like why is that different what's different about a large statue and I realized the thing that's different about it is that it brings in the appearance of someone looking at it right like um, in other words a human perceiving a large statue is part of how the simulacrum works a so the body. perception call that a right body, it's a different right? body exactly yeah. and so it, it and it, it it introduces a new variable where the model and the copy are concerned with internal consistency uh, you know the copy is internally consistent with the model the simulacrum is externally consistent right like it it, it introduces that external realm of appearances for a body a human seeing a large statue and that changes everything so right, there's a like different one, selection one of difference and a repetition of it. Like I mean, it's the selection That's and right. the repetition outside of the of the eternal return. Whereas like these That's are right. the sort of like corresponding points, and then repeating that difference produces this kind of thing. Like when when there's right. internal coherence, this is what comes out of it. When when that That's difference right. gets repeated, when it's external you know, the, coherence, the audience, external appearance, and copy, right. then this is what comes out of it, right? Well, once you introduce, once you once you start thinking about external coherence, all bets off right because with external coherence you now have uh, uh, anything could be your body that's perceiving right in this case it's a human and it's a large statue but that doesn't that's just one possible thing with internal coherence you have a telos which is I'm gonna get this internally correct with external coherence correctness it just goes out the window right like <laughs> there's no there's just no question of correctness there's a question of fidelity to a perception Ah, well, fidelity to perception now, there's a limitless number of ways that that could, that could be thought. And to me, that's where the simulacrum is, is truly dangerous from a certain platonic perspective, right? right? And truly enabling from another platonic perspective, right? Like, it's because it's, it really is, it, it is limitless, right? It is, it is structurally limitless. Like, mm -hmm. anything could be that body and that perception you know, anything can serve that role. And now you're talking about creating a statue that's going to look appropriate to infinite number of perspectives. Well, 
you know, that introduces so much malleability that you lose any sense of, like, the, the impossibility of a relationship to the model other than through its external coordinate, and that changes everything. Right. right. But, I mean, I wonder then if Plato is the better figure for the, the post-human turn, right? I mean, if you're talking about the, the kind of complexity of that, that particular view of his ontology makes him, it seems like somebody would have championed him by now. Well, that's right? what, I mean, that's Derrida's Pharmacon essay well, does exactly that. I realize that, but in rhetoric, right, he's always vilified, I mean, at least traditionally. I mean, my dream has always been to walk into my classical rhetoric class on day one and say, like, everyone knows Plato's the great champion of rhetoric, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. everyone knows that. Like, that's just right. what the field believes. And, and yeah. in other words, installing in students yeah. who don't know oh, any yeah. better, like, that's the yeah. starting point. The starting point yeah. is he is the champion uh, of rhetoric rather than the bad guy that we need to overcome, you know? Yeah, well, I've always, we, yeah. yeah. We have rhetorical theory because of Plato. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've always found I've always found Plato more interesting to read than Aristotle, and to oh, me, I that's enough to champion him over Aristotle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's just ex just experientially, the reading yeah, the reading experience is better. So I'm gonna go with Plato. <laughs> no, I agree, but but see that's so. But interestingly enough, because your affinity for Hegel, Hegel to re, to me reads much more Aristotelian, like way more Aristotelian. You know, yeah, and, I suppose so. But the, I, I still think that, I mean, we don't have, this is going to take us down a whole other, <laughs> we, I mean, I, I still think Hegel is, is doing something stylistically completely different from Aristotle. <laughs> but anyway. But anyway. We don't have to do that today. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there are certainly good reasons bracketing the certain, the history of philosophy and the history, the sort of, you know, shorter history of rhetoric there are good reasons for reading plato you know as nathaniel as you're wanting to read him right and and saying like no this is simply right um yeah. or or at very least it's a way more interesting starting point for thinking about the field rather than theory of forms transcendent aristocratic politics right like all of those yeah. uh all of those usual attributions which by the way i've all i've been curious if recently if that's changed because you know now that we see what the polis actually is like, right, in the last few years, uh, I just wonder if that aristocratic aversion to the demos makes a lot more sense, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, because I mean, when I was in grad school, it was like, you know, Plato hates the demos, he doesn't want the people involved, right. and what an elitist fuck, and all this stuff. And I was, I was always the asshole in class being like, have you met the demos? And now I think that, you know, more people on the left are like, ooh, yeah, the demos is maybe not, such a great thing like has that caused people to sort of reevaluate the alleged elitism or like what's exactly wrong with elitism again because <laughs> you right. know i'm just saying my faith in democracy was eradicated like when i was 19 or 20 and i first read the republic and plato like made the claim about the like i don't want the demos baking my bread i want i want a baker breaking my damn my, yeah. my damn bread but yes. yes i do too i do too yes <laughs> Um, you know, I, look, I mean, you know my version of this, you guys have gotten it plenty of times, but like, you know, there's a certain certain style or dimension of elitism that's like, what's wrong with that? Like, yeah, for, for certain styles of it, yeah. I mean, right, it, it right, is right, really, I mean, really hard to, I mean, yeah, to, to, to parse them out, but yeah, it's certainly not, I don't, I, I don't simply have a, I don't have a simple aversion to it. I, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, I mean, I, as much as I love it, at the end of that, um, 
Plato's Pharmacy essay and uh, the little anecdote uh, Derrida gives of, you know, the... Yeah, where you lose it, Plato loses control over shit. Right. I, I mean, even that isn't Derrida walking in and saying everyone knows that Plato was the great champion of, of rhetoric. Even that is like, right. I mean, it, it, it characterizes Plato as neurotically compulsively trying to, right. trying to control, control, like to, 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 yeah, to sift out control. these two repetitions and That's so right. that he can adequately judge the good from the bad and what Plato, or I mean, what Derrida in many ways is doing is saying like, look, as a sort of inherent feature of writing and iteration writ large is like that project is impossible. And even to the, the brightest mind, it's going to drive them batty. And that, I mean, I think that you could come, you could begin with an even more affirmative starting point that doesn't begin with like, everyone knows Plato is the guy that does this thing. Oh, by the way, his writing does something perhaps his writing, you know, sort of conspires against him. And, you know, instead, like, I mean, you have to be careful not to reintroduce a, a certain kind of intentionality into the thing. But I do think yeah. that you could, like, the, 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 the general sense of the thing could be shifted. That there is a version of writing where, like, if you treat writing as a container of, of knowledge, then you should be really suspicious of it as that thing, right? Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. I mean, the more I read The Fatalist, the more I think that it's, it's just a version of writing that Plato is, is sort of trying to undo, and that he's actually modeling another far more interesting version of writing, and part of it is hidden in the critique. Um, mm -hmm. No, I, again, I don't know how, I don't want to turn But that's where you can, I mean, you could, the, the terminology there, I mean, the, the last sentence that you read to is, are there not two dimensions within all language? Right. Right, there, there's right. a dimension right. of fixing and there's a dimension of unfixing. And it's not like, oh, for this part of the Plato's writing, he's doing fixing, and for this part, right. he's unfixing. It's No, they're the same. Always happening. They're the same moments, right? And that that's right. where, you know, I mean, that that, I think maybe it's that second point that is the hard one, to think about, right? Like, it, it's one thing to say, well, there are times where Plato is more exploratory and times when he's more fixated, but to say, no, 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 it's when he's most fixated that he's also most exploratory. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think, maybe the harder thing. That's what I'm saying about, like, as a place to jump in, that two dimensions at once. Like, as Alice gets bigger, she also gets smaller, but right. not because she's getting bigger and smaller at the same time. So, I mean, that that to me is... I mean, it's crucial in terms of this is that there you don't get to pick one, right? You don't yeah. get to go with the just getting bigger. I, I only want to get bigger, or I only want you know to fix. It's you know. Well, that that simultaneity, yeah. yeah, that simultaneity is just difficult to accept. I think for most theorists, even good theorists, you know, it's like it's either there are bodies or there are no bodies, or there's consistency well, or it's only paradoxal. inconsistency. Why can't you hold them together? You know, it, it, yeah. it, I mean, it feels necessary in Deleuze to do that, obviously. He, yeah. he foregrounds that, that move, you know. I think I mean, what I want to do then is really drop that in spite of himself, right? In spite of Plato, you know, this right, is still right. operating at right. the level of writing. And then just like drop right. the intentionality altogether. But like, no, everyone knows that this is like, these things are happening at the same time. And right. who cares if Plato was working against it or with it or whatever else? And I'm not going to focus on Or you that. just have a, have a, I mean, I would just talk about that. I would just, yeah. you know, like just yeah. address that question is the tendency would be to phrase this as Plato's writing working against what Plato yeah. is trying to do. 
Um, right. I want to resist this because that presumes a distinction between the two that yeah. I that I want to question. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I definitely no matter how you handle it, I definitely think you need to use logic of sense to 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 handle it. Not and and I agree. Not like as a lens or a hermeneutic, but definitely as a way of just kind of pointing to like this is a process of de-stratifying right I mean this is a process of um you know maybe maybe in this moment Plato was organizing like some kind of intensities around this concept and it's and it seems really fixed and it seems really um intentional but even in that moment that's going to become knocked around and de-stratified by sensuality by sensual relations and i by think the very process of structuring it right yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly exactly and 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 that is is also going to be an emergent moment where another body forms like yeah. oh there's yeah. another yeah. one you know and it's like that's the delusion uh, yeah. battery <laughs> right. Right. yeah exactly and this is just an aside but like who is plato the person i mean this is an obvious statement but like there can't be a Plato behind the writing. I mean, he was writing thousands of years ago. We have no idea what he looked like, what his motivations were, any of that. So, like, broad. writing is... Yeah, he was a big guy. He washed his hair every day. <laughs> he washed it every day. Loser. L'Oreal. What a yeah. loser. <laughs> his hair was always frizzy, disgusting. That yeah. comment wins the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean you that can do whatever you, you can do whatever you want with him. The issue is that there is the historical tradition at least in rhetoric of like cementing him in this one. So you do have to respond to that, I guess it's in some way and react against that if you want to. But I mean, like Derrida did, you can do something interesting with Plato. I mean, why not? It's it's there for the taking. It's just like I, I always t- it's always weird to me when people talk about them as people, as like people we know. Aristotle and Plato. They're not people. It, it's just text. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're words. I mean, they're, they're yeah. words that serve yeah. an organizing function, right? I mean, this yeah. is Foucault on right. author stuff. It's, you know, and yeah, Plato's a word that has an organizing function, a pretty big one. And right. certainly right. It, sure. within the field of rhetoric. And yes, someone like Robin's book and, and other things like that are, are complicating the ways in which um, those things get heard. And yet at the same time, it's a long process, right? Like turning around an oil tanker doesn't take a book, no. right? It, yeah. it, it's just, uh, so so-called tradition changes. Um, right. Or again, I mean, I also, when I really sit down and think about it, I'm like, I don't even fucking know what the tradition, I mean, I, you know, when I'm really, really serious about it, I oh, use phrases awesome. like the, I use phrases like the field, yeah. you know and phrases like you know things like the discipline or whatever and I'm like but what am I actually talking about because you know I'm just talking about I mean in Caddy's terms like the sort of doxa that I hear at conferences and that I occasionally read which is incredibly limited right it's just me and I don't like reading so I don't read very much stuff you know so I, I mean that it, it makes just as much sense to me really to go in and say look I recognize that a lot of people think that Plato's this aristocratic leader blah 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 but I also think that there are just as many people who think that that's a, that's a really reductive version that has done a disservice to the field of rhetoric and that in fact we could reposition this whether philosophy likes it or not like we could re- reposition this figure to do different kinds of intellectual work you know mm-hmm. because it's there to be I mean this is what this tells you if not Plato yeah. is that it 
it, it can't prevent itself. This is where uh, Zizek's argument against Deleuze is like Deleuze is the thinker of late capitalism. There's no, I mean, I think his quote is, there's nothing in the book Anti-Oedipus that prevents it from being taken up as a sort of learning tool for Wall Street, Wall Street traders. And I was like, that that's a good thing, right? Like, there's right. nothing that prevents anything from being read. There's nothing that prevents Nietzsche from being the Nazi philosopher. Like, right. and, the, and Derrida's really great about insisting <laughs> upon that, is that I'm not going to protect Nietzsche from having been appropriated by Nazis, because all writing can go anywhere it does go, mm -hmm. right? Like, it, mm -hmm. and so anyone... You know, the, the most sort of open-minded, you know, for me personally, that is the tyranny of the left these days, is an emphasis on being open. And it is, it's, it's just as tyrannical and just as fascistic and just, just as dangerous, really, you know, to me. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which doesn't make me fucking Jordan Peterson or some shit, right? Like, I mean... You know, you don't. You don't you have to be like. You are the thing from Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're not telling people to make their beds. You know, as like right. the key to success. <laughs> right, but I'm just, you know, you know, I'm just saying is like, look, no, there's, there. I mean, and I, I take that to be one of the arguments of anti-Oedipus, right? Is that uh, there are fascisms of the of the left, and they're yeah, just yeah. as real and fascist as the fascisms of the right, and they're just as scary and just as dangerous. I mean, I see, I see it in my own little, you know, experiences through the world. Like, that's some scary shit that you're doing in the interest of liberation, which to me makes it way scarier, you know? It's, well, it's more subtle, too, or at least for them. Like, it, it, the, the issue always is, for me, like, the illusion uh, that you're not morally compromised, which is right. what... yes, the purity, what peop yes. What people on the, yeah. or, like, certain theorists, uh, yeah. progressive people kind of tend to do is they assume the moral high ground... Which, I'm not equating that with, like, the right. I mean, I think there's degrees of, of uh, you know, moral ambiguity. But it is, it, it is at least just annoying when people assume that they're sort of outside of that, uh, yeah. you know, moral engagement. Whatever. It's yeah. the rebel alliance in Star Wars, right? Uh, like, the rebel is the unquestioning good that always has right. the moral high ground. Yeah. Insofar I mean, I saw, I see it in response to the New York Times thing like a couple of days ago, right? Like, every single one of my friends has been posting about their support for you know, the uh, women doctor you know, the non medical doctor thing, and I see this. And, and on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I, I actually quite agree with that, right? Like, and I agree with the critique. This is a fucking moron who shouldn't. It just should never yeah. be published, right? The, the real issue is not that they're a moron wrote this; it's that the Wall Street Journal published this. But whatever, yeah. that's money. I mean, I get it, you know. But but you see, I at the same time that I see this kind of and feel an agreement or an alliance with this position that's critiquing this, I also am like, eh, I feel like we're getting a little too, uh, you know, full of ourselves here and a little too comfortable with yes. our self righteous position. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. that, that like, yes. everyone is on board with this and we're so dismissive about it. Like, not, not because there's value to it, but just, like, wait, wait, wait. Let's settle down on the community-building work that, we're, that is happening in response to this uh, New York Times op-ed, or the Wall Street Journal op-ed, you know. So I think this is how we might get undergrads to understand something like logic of sense is by scaffolding that with demagoguery. Yeah. Yeah, right. Why, what's, the, that's right. It is the perfect Absolutely. concept yep. for foreign under anybody 
to understand how there is no difference. Well, right. okay, there's different. There are there's difference. <laughs> there's right. difference, right? right? But but that you know there is you know that that game um, of moral high ground or taking the yes. moral high ground, you know, is just not. Um, an option and yeah. and or once you start playing it you're playing the same game as everybody else that, that, but that's exactly right that was my response right. and i posted on a couple of friends facebook feeds is like guys like i mean i i don't disagree with you but let's let's settle down here a second like we are positioning ourselves now as these sort of authorities who are being respectful of women because we call them doctor you know Right. I hold right. on a second. Let's exactly. Like, there's so much to point there. There's there's not only the implications. There's also the style in which people are putting absolutely. out the support. Right. You know, right. there's all of that is is just the kind of stuff that we might critique if somebody absolutely. else were doing it. Absolutely. You know? that, I mean, that's the key point. Is like, yeah. doesn't this doesn't the tone of this tribe sound a lot like the tone of the tribe that you're you know like. The, the point is different. That's why I'm writing about style. The point, the content is different. Right. But the tone and the right. gathering of the forces and the incredible, like, I didn't hear anyone, I didn't read a single person saying, well, hold on a second, let's take a step. Like, not a single person was saying, everyone right. was jumping on to condemn the ridiculousness. And I was like, hey, tribes jumping on to condemn stuff. That <laughs> sounds familiar. Well, no, exactly. nobody's able to, like, contextualize their rage or even just their dispositions, you know? And yeah. for me, like, I tend to just not care about everything, you know, or at least not feel personally invested in a lot of these debates. But I realized that, I mean, at least recently, I was like, I think that that also comes from a place of privilege, you know? Like, if I were sure. a marginalized person, I would obviously <laughs> yeah, be invested more, right? in some of these conversations. So my my being able to not care is because I hold a certain position. Now... But it, the point is, like, people it, you know, on any spectrum of the conversation don't seem to, to be able to make that move and just put yeah. their own perspective into the larger context. You know what I mean? Right. I'm going to so that's where, so you, you, question. No, but now you're, you're, you're doing the Hegel self-awareness move, right? Like, you're <laughs> saying, you know, you're, you're, you're a little bit more elevated because you recognize the extent <laughs> to which your position is embedded in a context. And if more people recognized that their position was embedded in a context, but you just have the same problem at a different level, you know? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it would solve the issue if every, everybody was able to contextualize their own opinions, but it would maybe, it would maybe make people less annoying. I think it would make them less annoying and less self. Because meta commentating is always less annoying. No, but, but I think that I mean I I take right yeah always. But yeah. but I think to lose this if we take to lose this point here is that it's not less annoying, right? It's always going to work both ways. It's mm. always like that's the hard. That's what I'm saying. I think it's hard to really get your head around. Like it really is always going to go both directions at once. It, you can't yeah. ever try to to block the kind of retrograde. There's just no possibility of that happening. That anything that you do and say is going to go, it's going to be larger and smaller, you know. I, but I do think being aware of the tendency to calcify a position, which is sort of the problem that we're talking about or around, like that even yep. just a kind of general awareness of that leads to a more interesting engagement, doesn't it? I mean, like, as opposed to just calcifying the opinion, right? You know, like, I just, just... I just don't think... I just think it, it becomes just as uninteresting at a different level. Like, I don't think that it's... I mean, look, for you and me, yeah. 
right? Like, I mean, for us, right, like, you know, people who like to think about public opinions, I think it's a more interesting, you do end up having a more interesting conversation. But I just think that the plot problem is just going to redouble at a different level. Like, you're just never going to be able, in other words, I'm going to then say, well, Nate's not sufficiently self-aware, or he's contextualizing himself in a very selective way. If yeah. he contextualized himself more fully, he would see, you know what I mean? Like, we're always going to end up playing that, that kind of right. oscillating yeah. game. And again, the point is not stop playing the game. The point is, I mean, at all. The point is that's the only game in town, so you just fucking play it. Right? At some level, you could say that this is a kind of argument against constant self-awareness, against this sort of oh, Hegelian yeah. elevation. It's like right. there's Everything nothing... now returns to the surface. Yeah, there's <laughs> nothing to be gained. Like, it's just, another, it's just another... Right, it's just another move in the game. It's not, uh, yes. it's not a heightened right. level of meta-awareness now. Meta is just the yes. new, you know, whatever. Right. right. Like yes. it's just the new the new surface you're playing on. Exactly. So. It's it's so interesting to think about like I mean, just the concepts that we could again, these are just attributes, right? So yeah. um the concept of, of nonsense or the or or even the attribute of annoying, right, is is just a momentary configuration of right. of certain intensities, right? Um that is is fleeting and that is, you know, it's it's gonna be sensed and resensed as as people kind of come in and out of of that in incensed you know. incensed yeah there you go exactly exactly so it's interesting that there's there there are those concepts and then there are also kind of like these these concepts that we're using almost in a in a kind of meta way to then judge the right. formation of those concepts that's right. that's right. it's really I don't know it's interesting which is yet yeah, just another sort of like intersection of forms on, on a flat plane that's just going to create now a new that's right. sense and a new direction i mean i, I to yeah. to not rescue but to i mean return to the the value of, of self-reflection my i mean you would we'd have to think of it as flattened out which is to say like it's not simply better to do it but it does always create a unique line of differences yes. and if you yes. if you posit it as better or higher then i agree though that the same blockages are going to happen at at a different level but if you flatten it out because the, the, the right answer then is to say well self reflection doesn't do this thing that we thought we did so don't do it but you're like no self-reflection is a variable that sort of that opens That's up right. a, a set of, of lines of light and and closes down others like so, anything else like any like anything like anything else and unlike anything else well right? a distinct a yeah, singular exactly. right a, a singular line of flight but i mean everything is comprised of lines of flight in that regard so Correct. yeah it's singular but this is I where mean, like but this is that do. version of elitism that you know uh, that we're i think less comfortable with which is if you only did this better thing that everything would be better like if you only got educated right. and learned to better self reflect and That's learn right. to you know tame your doxa or you know civilize your your style, then then you know the the political body would be a better political body. Like, well, That's right. That you know we, we that was probably true for in some configurations in some places, but as soon as you universalize it, you're gonna have. I mean, I have you seen all the calls for like in the last year or so? I've seen so many calls for renewing the Enlightenment project. Right. I mean, because because to me, I really felt like there was a historical moment and I, I would mark it as like Adorno and those types of figures 
um, <clears throat> for whom, you know, the World War II just marked the, the end put of the paid, Right. It put paid to the idea, the Habermasian idea, right, that like more communicative rationality would lead to better, right? Like think people would be nicer and nicer. And I've, I've seen the sort of, or I've read, you know, the, the end run around that, like, well, no, we need more people need more education. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, n no, right? I mean, I thought we learned the lesson collectively right. that no, education is not, is not the solution. There, there isn't actually a solution, right? Like, Shockingly, there um, might not be a final solution. <laughs> right, that's, that's right. And, and Maybe and we should fact, have learned that lesson, if nothing else. It's the, desire <laughs> for a, it's the desire for a solution that is the dangerous solution yes. in that regard. Yeah. You yes. know? <laughs> right. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there's no prescription here, at least in these first two series, certainly not. But, I mean, there's definitely a pedagogy. I mean, it, it, you don't sure. have to you don't have to call it reflection, but he is encouraging an attention to the dynamics he's laying out, right? I mean, why would he write about sure. them if if he weren't sure. like so? The dynamics of language, and then the the simultaneity of the of becoming and being that that we've kind of uh, outlined. Yeah. I mean, he's he's asking us to look at that now. Whether we can like internalize it or incorporate that into our disposition, that's a, that's a different question not even really a necessary one. But I mean, I, I do think, I don't know, I, I don't think it's as apart from the Hegelian move as we might think. Or, oh, well, I know. mean, look, it's, there's a big difference between a pedagogy of climbing a ladder and a pedagogy of uh, go, moving laterally Spreading on the surface. On and yeah, and, and that to me is, Crystal that's is a big fucking difference. The, the, difference yes. is n the, the difference is not that one is a pedagogy and one is not. Right, they they are both pedagogies, and I agree with you. To me, pedagogy is what I it would be my term for the force of intervention. You know, um, so it's right. a response, um, but it's it's not a response in this sense. I would say, look, there's a question of emphasis going on here in Deleuze on the uh, you know what we would call the bodies without organs side or the going mad side, or right. right. It's a question of emphasis while still not trying to maintain that mm -hmm. other thing that he's writing, he's producing, he's making. He's not describing. He's making right an, an, an intervention into into thinking, and right. it is a pedagogy in such. And, and all things in this regard are a pedagogy, right? Everything that you do, say, think is a pedagogy of something, meaning it's an intervention into an existing system of forces in order to Which configure them in one way or another. And that's all, I mean, to me, that's what he's doing is he's saying, here's what happens, right? Here's how, here's how things work. There are just a series of interventions into things. So it's not, it's not like, hey, people stop complaining about the Wall Street Journal article um, you know, that's not necessarily my complaint, right? The complaint is like, look at how, look at how the, the problem replicates itself on the side that you would think would know better, right? But, mm. but, but just doesn't, right? That, that right. like, okay, so now it's our gang who's going to, you know, whatever. I mean, so it's not, I mean, in that sense, it's an intervention, but it's not a, here's the right way of doing it. Um, but because it you just do what you do, you do what you do. That is, I mean, so, so to point that out, John, I think is a an intervention, but it's also a reflective 
it's a meta-reflective intervention to say like, hey, look, the thing that you were complaining about them were doing the exact same thing. I mean, you can only make that claim from taking the distance to be able to look at, sure, at both sure. sides. So I, right. so I want to ask this as a, as a practical question then at, at, the, at the bottom of three where um, Deleuze... Jesus, we already got to the third page. We are moving to lightning. I know. <laughs> Where he, I mean, we, we kind of touched on this earlier, but where he again introduces paradox as a thing that destroys good sense as the only direction, but also that which destroys common sense as the assignation, uh, assignation of fixed identity, identities. And I mean, if, I mean, like, let's not presume that the function of good and common sense aren't, you know, actual functions that operate on this flat plane and that they have pretty you know weighty like they have quite a bit of of weight and yes they they rely on paradox but in some ways i kind of see this relationship as an invitation of sort of exploding their hold and one way of exploding that the force exploding not exploiting exploding but maybe exploiting um, the, the force of the common and the good sense would be to meta-reflect and say, ha-ha, see how this thing is the same as this thing. But there would seem to be other... I think part of what Deleuze is doing here is, is, is exploring other mechanisms by which paradox sort of undoes and, and destroys good and common sense. And one of the ways, I mean, um, Nate, you got me thinking about this, is just the way that there's this interesting oscillation. But I mean, like the two touchstones that he has in this book is Lewis Carroll and especially Alice in Wonderland, and then the Stoics, right? And like this second series reads like a repetition of the first, but mobilizing, but sort of like, as taken up within this in this the topoi of the of the Stoics, and right. I, I wonder if there's a, a a lesson to be learned in the way that he moves from these two sites back and forth, without trying to, like there is a kind of sublation might be the wrong word for it, but there, I mean it's not a teleological progression, but there definitely is a, a continuing, ever evolving sense in the way that these two. Um, sort of like points are, are, are revolving or orbiting around each other right yeah that's a, I mean that's a, that's a lot to throw out there as a question but I hope it'll spark I mean, a thought or two he, he does seem to read the Stoics as like sort of proto deconstructionist thinkers right I mean I don't know how the Stoics are usually taken up but they're I don't know if like would you call could you say that Deleuze is like saving the Stoics here, in a way, like, it, or is he just mobilizing them in a completely different way than they have before? Because I'd never read about the Stoics in this uh, like register. You know what I mean? Yeah, neither have I. This totally threw yeah. me the first time I read this when he brought up the Stoics because I mean the Stoics and the Epicureans are only ever brought up in my in my training, which granted, like you know, my training in, in this era was, was, was pretty limited to my undergraduate degree, but it's only ever brought up in a sort of like, within the context of an explicit ethics. Never yeah. is it really take, I mean, like you get like the glossary version of the sort of like, on, like ontological metaphysical side of things with atomism and by, um, it's only ever a gloss. 
And it was interesting to me that he didn't, like it didn't, wasn't obvious that he was taking them up in an ethical grasp. But when you read the Williams book, like that's the first thing he hits you. It's like, this is a book about ethics and ethics. life. And, but but I think that's a but 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 by the way like at least in terms of my association with the Stoics truthfully it pretty much comes from this book so like you know I haven't spent a whole lot of time with Marcus really you know like so I don't have that sort of that kind of background but I think that's the point which is to say because they're ethical thinkers first and foremost that's their ontology so right. the the baseline question here is not what stuff is the cosmos made of but what do you do when faced with this problem. Right, like, mm -hmm. and, and that's their that's their starting point, and they don't need a starting point prior to that, or there's no need for an investigation of the nature of matter in order to get to those questions of what do you do when faced with a decision uh, in life, and that's exactly I think that's the starting that's the surface quality is precisely we don't need any of that uh, cosmology mm -hmm. or the better way of saying it would be all those cosmologies presented themselves as preparatory for an ethics in a sense. But they are just other terrains of ethics, right? Mm -hmm. So that those cosmologies have historically lended a sense of depth, background, premises to ethical decision-making, right? But they have never been anything other than ethical decision-making, right? When you're making a cosmology, you're doing the same thing. Like, you know, what role should God have here is functionally the exact same question as what do I do in this case, right? It is the same question. And that's, I think, what he locates in the Stoics is precisely the thing that you guys are associating, which is just that they're not real philosophers. They're just sort of people who are telling you how to live. He's like, yeah, that's mm -hmm. what real philosophy is. Right. So that's right. fascinating because then he's kind of, in some ways he's setting up in in knowing that this is going to be read, right? He's setting up a performance where he's taking he's taking an ethic that is only sensible. It is an only right. sensible ethic. Right. And what he's asking us is <laughs> I mean, well, he's not asking, but he knows what's going to happen is in this encounter, in this event, um we are going to kind of we're going to sense that ethic. Right. Mm -hmm. It's because yeah. there's an Im there's an imminence there that's not that that's right. that will is yet to be right. That's right. Um, and so to kind of go back to to the question of you know Dr. Jill Biden and 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 what are we to do with with the style of engagement? I think Deleuze would just be like, actually, I'm just really curious about the feeling that these people were trying to escape by forming this like yeah. staunch thing in this moment because that that sense oh, the, res that the response yeah yeah, yeah the, that the, sense like that the need feeling. for the need for solidarity of women academics right yeah like, yeah so i mean that's one of the effects is that you have a kind of you know a calcifying of women academics as an identity yeah. i mean mm -hmm. not that it hasn't mm -hmm. been there before but you know and yeah, I, yeah i don't think diagnosing responses has to be meta-reflective either I mean, I, I don't think, like, we can think of that on the flat plane, as Nathaniel was saying, that Deleuze kind of lays out, right? I mean, it's just tracing yeah. responses yeah. and the effects and the affects uh, and how they, uh, you know, act on one another. So I don't think you have to think of it as, like, I'm getting on top of my own response to this situation. No, no, you, you're absolutely right, but that's yeah. why it's not Hegel. Because for Hegel, you do, right? For I, Hegel, I don't, I don't think... You don't I mean, think I the don't, matter, the, it's not a ladder? 
Well, I mean, I, uh, do we? Uh, we don't. I don't know. I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> I, don't think we, <laughs> I think you can Side read podcast. Hegel differently, just as you can read Plato differently, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah but do I don't think you can get away from the do. notion. I don't think you. I mean, I don't think you can get away from the notion of reflection is advancement and progress in Hegel. I don't think that they, you can say that that's it's not. Th- I mean, you can say it, but I mean. But it's like, a it's a perpetual I, interrogation of the capacity to err, you know, which is different from succeeding in a meta reflective move. Um, I I know that we've like kind of I, talked. You you think it's the two sides of the same coin. Where it's I like, think what's I mean, going I mean, on in the logic of sense here is that like the 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 notion of of erring cannot is 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 not sensible without the possibility of, of right of of, right. Su- of success. I, yeah. I mean, I get that. Which which, in, which is like cannot help but bring in a whole teleology and and, and means ends logic. Yeah. No. I mean, the, again, that yeah. reading I mean, the reading's valid. I I just think there is there's nothing but error. In Hegel, and I and I think to a certain extent, if you if you grant that, then it's it's sort of the same thing for Deleuze. I mean, like, but it, he just chooses not to use the terminology. I mean, like, there's no well, success. What is it? All success for Deleuze? No, there's yeah. no there. That, no, it's all success. <laughs> it's all and it's all error. Like, yeah, there's no. Yeah. I mean, it's just right, right. whatever happens is what happens. There's no yeah. progress. See, right? I would there I would say that the, yeah, I agree. I would say that the the metric of success and error is is nonsensical at right. the level of thinking the yeah, that's, the flat plane of in, imminence that they are both moves right. that right. that operate that can operate and frankly they can be disassociated with each other too on the flat plane but when when you start talking about them as the metric for judging the movement of the dialectic yeah. then they're standing outside of the thing and even if the answer is always wrong that the wrong answer is only ever possible in relationship to the right answer or the right move, mm-hmm. even if the right mm-hmm. move is impossible. The, mm-hmm. the very possibility of, of conceptualizing the wrong response, the error, is only made possible because of even the impossible possibility of, of, of the, the, the success, right? And that's, to me, that's the difference, is right. that, you know, even if... I, I can I can divorce success and error from sort of like an evolutionary teleology where like you can be like right like chorus like success and error at the level of correspondence which you wouldn't have to think about teleologically, mm-hmm. um, and I could but I I can't think of error without success, at, at that sort of meta reflective, move at the, at the, from the perspective of the metric that is judging, right the action. I mean I do think. You know, he kind of, you, that last passage at the end of uh, page two, I think, um, where he talks about paradox being sort of essential. Where was that? Mm-hmm. You, you read yeah, it. Yeah. But, uh, oh, that was at the bottom is, of three that I read. But he okay, said he brings yeah. it up earlier, yeah, I think. Bottom of three. But, I mean, paradox to me, first of all, this is interesting to, like, ontologize that term, you know? So paradox mm-hmm. is not just a word for a linguistic phenomenon. It's like, it's a structural phenomenon of like life, um, which is just kind of cool in itself. And I don't think I've ever really heard it used that way, but I do think, and this is, you guys aren't going to like this, but I do think that kind of presupposes the error success dynamic, right? I mean, in terms of the success of individuation versus the error, the necessary error of the inconsistency of relations. Now, again, 
You don't need those terms. I just think they do kind of they, they slide in there. If you want, I don't think there would can, be any. There's no notion of a successful or unsuccessful individuation, right? Because any individuation is also simultaneously a de-individuation. I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's precisely the thing is that you can't be on one more or less on one side of the movement than the other. And where Hegel was to say, you're always on the wrong side. You're always erring. You're always failing to totalize. There's like totality is off the table here and so That's is right. non-totality as well yeah. right right i mean and and the, the paradox you know he opens up with it like you know um what does it mean to say you know becomes larger and what's its necessary relationship with becoming smaller what does a success or a failure even look like within that paradoxical because that's the paradox the simultaneous becoming smaller larger right like right Let's let's stick have with to that. introduce. Let's, let's stick a, a, with that for a second. You yeah. said because I, I I just went down that rabbit hole and you said you did as well. I'm curious what. I mean I'm I'm sort of setting aside the Hegel question right now because, for several reasons, not least of which is that Caddy wasn't <laughs> subjected to us. We, we've had these conversations for six months and uh, Nate is interested in hanging on to uh, a conceptual itinerary that Nathaniel and I don't think that we want to leave behind, I think he's right, like trying right. to well, say it is fairly... He could keep going hate. with it. He could keep going with it as long as he puts... As long as he slaps a quote from Alice in Wonderland. Right, right, right. And it, it's... It, just in short course, it is the, the logic of... You see it in Lacan and Zizek. The logic right. of the necessary failure to totalize that is subjectivity, right? right. You, you know, the, the reason it's, everything is always contingent is because you can never fully totalize this thing. And, and it requires... It requires a presumption of an ideal totality. In Lacan, it's the real uh, yeah. that at least hypothetically could exist. And and what Nathaniel and I are saying is that one of one of the things that we like about the kind of Deleuzian itinerary is that there is no uh, totality imagined, real or otherwise. So there's no success or there's no failure. I mean, it doesn't matter which term you use. There's no success or failure. It's just right. Because there is no sort of idealized model. That that's the background for that conversation. Um, but uh, Nathaniel, I want to ask about like, so what did you come up with in terms of? Because that really did. I mean, I really, I was like, I'm going to figure this fucking thing out. Like, what does this, what does this mean? And by the way, one of the things that interests me is my desire to figure it out, right? My yeah. desire to re what we would call that is resolving the paradox. In other words, yeah. to take the paradox out of the realm yeah. of paradox. Right and, and make it into simply opposing doxes, right? right and right. and not simultaneous doxes. And there's mm -hmm. by the way, I don't know if you if you read this caddy, but there's an article I came across. I cite it in the book, but uh, it's a really good article on paradox, and it it goes through like the types of paradoxes, and it basically says the only true paradox is the ones that are really 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 unresolvable, and those are the ones that interest him here. And I I'll find it for I'll find okay, the site yeah. for you. But it's really cool because he's like, most paradoxes really aren't paradoxes. They are just sort of like you haven't mm -hmm. thought yeah. hard enough about them because if you think about them, you can resolve them. And he's, but the thing that he says in there, and, I, and this is the quote that I think I took from him in the book, is like, but if you stick with 
and that's his phrasing, you have to stick with the paradox, like stay mm-hmm. with it as paradox. That's when it gets really interesting. And I think that's what Deleuze is after here, is yeah. if you stick with it as a paradox. In other words, don't do what don't Nathaniel resolve. and I are about to talk about you know, doing, right. which is like, I want to understand it. I want to get my head around it so that I can say, because I, I was able to resolve it. And what, did you resolve it, Nathaniel? What did you come up with? For the Alice is getting it's, bigger and getting smaller, but not at the same time. Because she's always getting bigger than she was, but smaller than she will become. And so this is why the becoming always eludes the, the, the present, because as soon as you articulate it within the present, it ceases to be a becoming and it's a being. Right. But like, what could, what could that um, being ever look, what could becoming ever look like as a being? It would have to have one foot in the future and one That's foot right. in the past, right? So yeah. there's like a kind of a stretching that, that happens. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, so yeah, it's like, how, how do you That took me two hours. It took him 30 seconds to say it. It took me two hours to figure that out. Well, John, like Alice, I have no interest in books that don't have conversations or pictures. So, <laughs> so that, that's my, uh, I mean, the reality is I've been trying to articulate that forever. And I was like pretty convinced when you asked me that I was just going to go on like a word vomit for about, 45 seconds and, and say nothing it's pretty because concise. the only way I've, I've i've tried i've been trying to yeah write in the margins and i've like and this is you know like the this the first time i read i had it as a pdf and then i finally got research money and i could buy books and so this is the second time working through it with with the book and yeah like i mean it, it is amazing to me how much energy it takes just to f- think through this at the sentence level and i have to oh really God, like totally. get in the flow totally. of the thing i tried reading it last night and it was just like words on a page. And then when I reread it today, it was like last night helped as a preparatory thing. And then today I was able to actually, the, the language, that's why I started with the being and becoming stuff today is like the simultaneity of the, like to hypo, like part of the paradox is trying to hypothesize the, the, the becoming, right? Becoming, right. Because right. it's like, yeah. well, that means yeah. that she's, bigger than she was and she's smaller than she will become at the same time right which means there is she is in the state of not having fixed boundaries as a state which is why that's right. this yeah, whole that's thing right. that's why yeah. i love this phrase about how all of this contests alice's personal identity and makes her lose her proper name yep yep and why she hates right. little boys because they're too deep they couldn't handle it. they get they get eradicated not lewis carroll hates little boys is that in the section that we read today? I think yeah, it's in the second yeah, yeah, series, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, because they they would just get their their depth would get eradicated by this. They couldn't handle these paradoxes, so they would either ignore them or try to obliterate them or resolve them. Um, yeah, yeah. This is what boy. I was saying with like, but it, it it's it honestly, she is made more fleshy as she is made. Yeah. Less, a, 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 less as, as virtual as possible. Right. She right. is literally virtual at the same time that you are thinking about cuts and, yeah. you know, yeah. like it's yeah. so interesting to me that those lim- those limits are just, blah, they're yeah. constantly, yeah. So I, I didn't follow you the first time, but this time that makes more sense because I mean, thinking yeah. about like the, the image that I just showed where she's stretching and like there's this whole dialogue exactly. that she has with herself and she's like, and she can see she's not growing all that she's not growing proportionally. Right. So she like she sees her feet and they're not proportional. She is like that right. statue. They're not proportional to her head. And she's like imagining having to send them 
like gifts and a constantly like new sets of shoes like every so many seconds and she's imagining like the letter that she would send them and then she notices realizes how ridiculous it is but i mean you know but she is both losing the sort of like the conflation of her body with her name with herself at the very same time that she's becoming sort of like far more conscious of her corpore corporeality in its sort of stretching and bending which that, that that's an interesting uh, uh, juxtaposition, I think. Totally. So as, in a sense, it's like as she's losing a normative conception of the body, she becomes more bodily. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what Caddy said the, the, like 10 minutes ago, yeah. and I did not understand what she meant. And then when she said it was like again, an hour and a half. It, it was like an hour and a half <laughs> ago. An hour and a half ago. But that's cool. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. This book, like, I mean, this really, honestly, like, to, to understand digitality, like, I would, this is making me think, rethink, like, how would I teach digital rhetoric? Like, I would, I might start with these two Alice series. Alice in Wonderland, right? Well, look, yeah, Alice in Wonderland, these two series, yeah. and, like, you know, QAnon. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>